Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. We cannot create just um, health policies to address this issue. Economic policy is health policy. Education policy is health policy. We cannot separate those policies. I'm your host, Alan Weil. Children born in the United States are born U.S. citizens. Some of these children are born to immigrant parents who return to their country of origin, either voluntarily or because they are deported. In 2015, more than half a million U.S. citizen children lived in Mexico, having returned with their parents. These children may face language and school adjustments, stressful living arrangements, and economic, socio-emotional, and health challenges. Fewer than half of them report holding Mexican citizenship, complicating their access to health and social services. The well-being of U.S. citizen children living in Mexico is the topic of today's health policy. I'm here with Sharon Borja, an assistant professor in the Graduate College of Social Work at the University of Houston. Dr. Borja and co-authors published a paper in the July 2021 issue of Health Affairs, investigating health insurance coverage among U.S. citizen migrant children living in Mexico. They found that about half of U.S. citizen migrant children in Mexico have limited, inadequate health insurance, which is a barrier to receiving necessary health care services. Dr. Borja, welcome to the program. Hi, Alan. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us on the show. You focus on insurance coverage of U.S. citizen children living in Mexico. I have to think that many of our listeners haven't really thought about this group before hearing this podcast today. So who is this group? Why is it important for us to understand their circumstances? So I have to agree with you, Alan, that I think a lot of people are not really familiar with this group. When I look into the literature, I didn't see much um, that we know of. There was one um, documentary, but a lot of them are really focused on their um, adaptation, acculturation. But one of the things that I think contributed to our lack of awareness of this group is the way that we talk about them. Because in the past, when we read um, media coverage or even academic articles, we often refer to them as children moving back to Mexico with their parents. But I want to uh, really underscore the fact that these children are not returning to Mexico with their parents. These children are moving or migrating from the United States to Mexico. And a lot of times, um, not because it was their choice to move there, but because their parents have been deported, forcibly removed from this country. For a lot of these kids, this they it, it's not their choice. And I think that there has to be some, uh, we have to change the way that we talk about these children and emphasize that these children are migrants um, and not um, return migrants like when we lump them with their parents. So these are kids, uh, many of whom uh, have only known life in the United States. They have the support of their family or their parents that they're moving with, but it's a completely new world for them. One element of your study has to do with the geography. So just before we get into the findings, where in Mexico do these uh, children tend to settle? A lot of these children settle 
in the states near the U.S. border, more than 45% of them are actually living in the U.S. border. That's based on the weighted statistic. However, if we looked at just the, the number of these children, the state of Jalisco um, has um, the most uh, U.S. citizen migrant um, children. There's, there's some anecdotal evidence also that this is... Um, some researchers at the Universidad de Guadalajara have already noticed a lot of U.S. citizen children moving into Guadalajara in Jalisco. And so that's where we find them most. And these are U.S. citizens. So at a certain point in their life, they might choose to return to the United States and they would have every legal right to do so. Is that right? Yes. So again, language really matters. So sometimes we read in the literature that these are these are U.S. born children. And so people would notice in our article that we're not calling them U.S. born, we're calling them U.S. citizen because we want to emphasize that these children were not only born in the U.S., but that they also have claim um, to U.S. citizenship like every other person that was born in the United States. But but what makes them really um, a unique population is because these children could also qualify for Mexican citizenship um, as long as they can prove that at least one of their parents was or is a Mexican citizen. Well, let's start turning to the findings of the paper now that we have a little bit better understanding of the population itself. So you're looking at health insurance coverage. And again, not all our listeners will be completely familiar with the Mexican healthcare system. You're looking at coverage through the social security institutes. You're not counting coverage that uh, we used to know as Seguro Popular, uh, which is not as comprehensive. So when you say whether or not these children have insurance. Tell us what that means. So in our paper, we defined having adequate insurance as having employment-based insurance or what um, we identified as Social Security Institute type of coverage. So in Mexico, anybody who is employed in the formal sector, whether through the government or through a a private firm, they would have access to the Social Security Institute, which they pay into and their employers um, pay into. And this is a um, type of coverage that is far more superior than what it is um, offered by um, a government-sponsored type of insurance. Well, I want to move into uh, what the coverage numbers were, but I think we should do that after we take a short break. So we'll do that now. Hi, I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Vabron Watts. Hey, Leslie, the Health Affairs Podcast Network is really growing. I know, Vabe, our new podcast, Health Affairs This Week, places listeners at the center of health policy's proverbial water cooler. Each week, our trusted editors discuss this week's most pressing health policy news, all in 15 minutes or less. So subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen and join the fun. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Sharon Borja about health insurance coverage of U.S. citizen children living in Mexico. Before the break, we were talking about the different types of insurance coverage. And the question is, do these kids have the coverage they need? So let's dive into the findings from your paper. 
What are the overall findings with respect to the rates of insurance coverage for U.S. citizen children in Mexico? And when you look at those numbers, how do they compare to insurance coverage for other groups that you might want to compare them to? Yeah, so we found some really sobering um, statistics in our paper. We were surprised to learn that more than half or 53.6% of these children do not have access to good quality insurance. So while these children, we recognize that they do have access to the INSABI, which is a universal um, health insurance, if they can prove their citizenship, their access to this type of insurance means that they are really vulnerable to delayed care, financial risk. So Mexican-born minors have much higher insurance rates. And also, when we compare them to the insurance rates um, in um, inside the southern border of the United States, the insurance rates um, in that area is um, pretty high. I think it's more than 10%, but yet that's five times. 53.6% is five times uh, more uninsured children. And so um, I think that this is an issue that needs to be looked at. And a lot of these children, we, we also know from our study that 80% of them lived in urban areas. And a lot of those kids, a majority of these kids do not have um, health insurance. So 80% of those that live in the urban areas do not have health insurance. So I think it's a travesty to have to be in urban areas where um, technically you should have more access to hospitals, you should have more access to clinics, and yet there is a barrier there because if you um, if you do not have employment based insurance, you are um, subjected to very long wait time. A far greater concern um, is that the forty five percent of U S citizen migrant children living near the border, sixty five percent of them do not have um, access to good quality insurance. And I think for for these kids, there is such a great opportunity for the United States to um, invest together with Mexico to invest in these children because these children would have easier access to to the healthcare system in the United States, um, north of the U.S.-Mexico border. And so I think that um, these uh, statistics that we presented in our paper and um, have the opportunity to talk about today really presents a great opportunity for us to think about how we could ensure that these kids have access to good quality care. Now, the parents of these kids have just gone through a transition, again, whether it's uh, deportation or voluntary migration, they've crossed a border. Uh, it looks like the characteristics of the parents have a big effect on whether or not these kids have coverage. Can you say a little more about that? Yes. So we found that employment um, of the parents or participation in the labor force um, was associated with the children having employment-based insurance, which is, uh, it's logical, right? So if a parent is employed, especially if they're employed in the formal sector, then automatically their children would have access to 
a better quality insurance through their parents' work. But we also found a higher level of education of the parent is associated with uh, improved access of children to Social Security Institute type of um, coverage. Now, you noted earlier that the, the data from the survey go back to 2015. Um, a lot's changed since then. You've mentioned COVID. There has been a change in the safety net program. Uh, but also migration flows and uh, certainly U.S. policies have changed. Um, I realize it's a lot of ground to cover, but can you think about how the combination of those changes I described might affect the findings or at least perhaps the implications of the findings uh, over the time period from uh, where these data were collected? And so one of the things that we are excited about is the fact that um, Mexico just completed their 2020 census. And we're looking forward to uh, get a hold of the data set so we could start analyzing and start to compare what the 2020 data looks like for U.S. citizen migrant children compared to the 2015. So we are anticipating that there uh, has been an increase in the um, arrival of U.S. citizen migrant children. That is our hypothesis um, going into testing um, this uh, with this new data set that Mexico just gathered last year. And the reason that we are expecting the increase, the arrival of U.S. citizen migrant children in Mexico is because of the increased deportation that um, happened during the Trump administration. And we know we've, we have anecdotal evidence from the media of parents or Mexican parents getting deported into Mexico and getting deported with their children and getting deported with children without proper documentation for their children. So many of the, these parents, they are deported to Mexico and they do not have proof of their um, children's Mexican citizenship and they do not have proof that they are also U.S. Uh, citizens. And so I... I would um, think that the panorama has changed um, since 2015. And uh, I would assume that the, the rates would change. And um, we are hoping that at least for, uh, the, for access to universal um, insurance in Mexico, that, that would at least address some of the gaps um, for access to health services. However, the larger barrier or the bigger barrier for this population is the fact that they do not have, they often do not have proof of their Mexican citizenship so they can access the universal healthcare system in Mexico. You've made pretty clear the reasons why we should be concerned about this population, but I wonder if they're really on the front of the agenda for either the Mexican government or the U.S. government. Do you have a sense of that? My sense is that they are not um, in, they're not a priority. And I have not really heard a lot of conversations about this, uh, what I call hidden population of migrants. While we have some coverage from the media um, a few years back, but we don't really talk about them. And so, I hope that with our uh, paper um, coming out through Health Affairs, that uh, we start looking at them and really considering um, their uh, just the gravity of the needs of these children. And 
I say gravity because these children are at the stage in, in the life course where developmental um, trajectories are set in place. So if a, a child, a two, three-year-old child, do not have access to their doctor, to their routine care appointments, then developmental milestones could be missed. And that's what um, sets um, the trajectories of their, these children to have compromised health outcomes as they um, grow up. One of the things that I think could really raise um, uh, attention to this vulnerable or at-risk group is if the National Institute of Health would put out a request for proposal to fund studies, academic research, um, that would look at the trajectories of these children, look at their developmental outcomes, and, and even further than that, to find longitudinal studies that would really look at how these children are faring. And the National Institute of Health has that power to define um, to, to define research priorities. And so I think having a request for a proposal through the National Institute for Minority Health and Health Disparities, for example, or the NICHD, or the Nas National Institute for um, Child Health and Human Development, I think would be a perfect spot uh, for us to really launch um, research to focus on these children and therefore bring their um, challenges and also their, their their grit and resilience because I know that a lot of these kids move there with with deported parents with, uh, moving there with poverty um, and, and and yet a lot of them thrive and, and so I think um, NIH can play a huge role in in defining some of these priorities. Well, let me just wrap up by asking you sort of the broader policy question. Uh, given that migration across this border is going to occur in greater or lesser extent, uh, no matter what the broader immigration policies are, what would an effective trans-border U.S.-Mexico policy be focused on the health of this vulnerable group? So uh, we believe that a multi-pronged approach would be best. We cannot create just um, health policies to address this issue, but um, I want to quote um, one of the researchers um, that had talked about economic policy is health policy. Education policy is health policy. We cannot separate um, those policies because um, as we recommended in our paper, considering a better reintegration policy for parents of these children would have a huge impact in their access to better quality health coverage. So I think that um, improving both economic policies integration, reintegration policies, education policies would have an impact. And more specifically, there is a need to really streamline the process, both for Mexico and the United States, to for these children to be able to document their citizenship, both um, on the U.S. side and the Mexican side. And one of the big barriers for this population when they're trying to um, obtain their citizenship is what we call the apostille. Mexican families would have to apply for documents uh, from the United States and an apostille stamp would have to be attached to it. So an apostille um, is an international stamp that proves authenticity. 
and 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 it costs money to um, apply for an apostille stamp, um, and and yet there is this is a barrier for families that have already been deported. They do not have access to a lot of economic resources, and yet we want them to have an apostille stamp on these documents. And and also there's a long wait time. The, the Mexican government uh, will recommend that they can, can start reconsidering other ways to certify the authenticity of documents without having an apostille. And we also are recommending a bilateral um, agreement to recognize both birth certificates. So, um, Another layer that could um, further simplify the process if, if uh, there's two neighboring countries, um, U.S. and Mexico, can just recognize each other's birth certificate as proof of um, dual citizenship, since these birth certificates actually already include their parents' nationalities. And all that we need to do is have these documents translated, which still would cost money, but at least it would streamline the process of getting recognized as a, as a dual citizen for either country. And the um, other, um, I think, more important recommendation um, that we're trying to, um, have to share is for the continued benefits um, through Medicaid and um, CHIP, because these children would actually qualify for these benefits. And they might already be signed up with Medicaid or CHIP while they're in the United States, but would lose that benefit when they move back to Mexico. And so given that 45% of the half a million children migrating to Mexico actually stay in uh, Mexican states near the U.S. border, I think that removing the residency requirements for Medicaid um, in the United States could help these children have access to better quality care. If they um, do not qualify for the employment-based insurance in Mexico, at least they would have the option to use their services in the United States. And we're um, we're only we're only referring to children within the U.S. Mexico border as defined by the U.S. Mexico uh, Border Health Commission as 100 kilometers south of the U.S. border, which includes about 80 municipalities south of the U.S. border. We are also hoping that the um, uh, U.S. Mexico Border Health Commission would create a work group that could focus in monitoring the health and health access um, of U.S. citizen migrant children in Mexico because investing in these children really would just increase uh, their productivity, they would have better future, and they could become uh, big contributors both to the economic and um, the social development of either um, Mexico or the United States. Well, uh, thank you so much for this conversation and for bringing to my attention and to the attention of our listeners a population that uh, probably few have uh, given a great deal of thought to, and even if they have, don't have much information about them. And so your paper provides us all with some insight that we wouldn't have otherwise have. Uh, thank you for the paper and for being with me today on a Health Policy. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. 
The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.